If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give him a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Jefferson Davis at his home Beauvoir in Biloxi, Mississippi. He'll be answering our call on November 11th, 1881, at the age of 73 years. Despite having poor health his whole life, he will live to be 81 years old, outliving Robert E. Lee and Abraham Lincoln. When the South seceded from the Union, they were in a quandary. They had no leadership and no government. Jefferson Davis was the obvious choice because he had served the United States his whole life as a soldier and in the House of Representatives and as a senator and as the Secretary of War. After serving his country in so many different capacities, it's easy to see why he referred to himself as a reluctant secessionist. Davis's hero was George Washington. He appreciated his unwillingness to give up despite incredible odds, and he wanted the same thing Washington wanted independence. The North and the South had different ideas about what the future would look like, and there was no way to settle these entrenched beliefs without bloodshed. Davis thought that the pro-slavery document, the Constitution, gave his people in the South the right to live as they always had without interference from the central government. As you listen to this conversation, remember, it takes place 140 years ago. Regardless of how many statues we tear down in modern times or monuments we deface, this history still happened. The choice to be open-minded and learn from history is not the same as endorsing those same mistakes. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and eggnog drinkers everywhere, I give you Jefferson Davis. Hello, is that you, Mr. Davis? It certainly is. It is so nice to meet you. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand, it's called a smartphone. It allows us to speak as if we were nine feet from one another, and it also allows me to share a recording of this conversation with people around the world in hopes that those not understanding why the South needed to succeed from the Union might have a little bit more clarity. And, sir, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions, but before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions you might have first? Well, I'm sure glad that you know how to work, pronounce the word secede, secession versus succession. That's a number of people have said to me, and also, hopefully, you know how to pronounce the word cavalry and not cavalry, talking about the men who ride horses versus the place where Jesus was crucified. Which one? Cavalry is the, are the horses. Cavalry, that where Jesus was crucified, which one is that? Calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. Okay. Jesus was crucified at Calvary, and there's a number of times people would pronounce Cavalry is cavalry, which is very upsetting to me. As a person who writes books, I am very particular about words. And I feel like I've always said both of these right, but now I have both of them and they're in my head. So as we're going through this, if I say one of them wrong, please correct me, because now this will be something I think about all the time. 
I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. And I have read so much about your life in anticipation of this discussion. And you have lived a colorful life. I mean, you've been a senator. You've been in the House of Representatives. You were a soldier, Secretary of War. You, of course, were the president. You were a planter. And I'm just curious, out of all these things that you've done, which one of these did you enjoy the most? Well, probably a planter where I was home at Briarfield growing cotton with my wife, uh, Verena. You know, that doesn't surprise me because everything up into that point, it seems like whatever you were involved in, whether you were fighting in the Mexican War or you were the president of the South, it just seemed like there was so much chaos that you were dealing with all the time. And I'm guessing when you reach that point in your life where you're able to maybe, I don't want to say relax, but maybe do something where like that that's a little bit more relaxing, uh, that was probably nice. It was When you were planting, is that similar to what your life is right now? Well, the house I'm living in right now, most of the, within the last three years, I've been working on a book called The Rise and the Fall of the Confederate Government and trying to recall all this information in my head has been somewhat conflicting because some of it is not very good memories at all. I'd have to say that maybe you don't know this, but I was a reluctant secessionist. Tell me more about that. Well, now, you know, I first attended West Point Military Academy in the fall of 24, graduated in 28 in New York, and then became a soldier for six to seven years until I resigned because I wanted to uh, marry uh, Sarah Knox Taylor, who was the daughter of Zachary Taylor. The time between 1835 and 1845 is when I was really the plantation owner. And after that, I was in and out of Washington City from 1845 to 1861 with hardly ever a time off except when we um, were on summer break, planting the crops, tending to the slaves. It was very much a life of ease and very enjoyable. It seems like you got 10 years of that, and everything outside of that was, was pretty busy. L let's go back to West Point for a minute. I was reading a little bit about West Point. Did you enjoy being there? You got in a little bit of trouble when you were at West Point, didn't you? Not at first. <laughs> See, my older brother, Joseph, who's about 23, almost 24 years older than I am, was more of a father to me. See, my father was 56 when I was born. I mean, 52 when I was born. I'm sorry. That's my age. You know, by the time you're a 10-year-old, when I returned from St. Thomas, he was an old man. He was oh. always an old man to me. West Point Military Academy was very, very strict. The food was awful. And uh, being the 10th child of my mother, usually the 10th child gets away with a lot more. And all of a sudden, you're standing there taking orders and... Even after West Point, there's a number of times I almost got court-martialed because I refused to go out and stand in the pouring down rain for first call. Uh, yes, I did get into to some problems at uh, West Point, but I tell you what, I really enjoyed my time at Benny Havens. Have you ever heard of Benny Havens? No. What's Benny Havens? Well, it was kind of a um, tavern. Benny's wife made a lot better food, and Sylvania Thayer, 
came to West Point, I believe, in 1818 as commandant and set up the system of academics and punishment, which was called demerits. And I received quite a few demerits, and those were never, ever taken off. Now, you might say, well, how could you get a demerit? If you arrive late to class, you're going to get a demerit. If your hair isn't combed and straightened out, and you might get a demerit for your room being messy, not reporting the first call, and Benny Havens was off limits. So we basically had to sneak away to Benny Havens, and, and Benny taught us a trick where we would have two chairs back-to-back, each of us facing the wall, the opposite wall, of course, and then we could drink our drinks without seeing the other person and swear on the honor code that we never saw the other drink alcoholic beverages. And yes, uh, due to the eggnog situation, I was court-martialed and had to defend myself. Now, the officer that came up to the rooms where we had this party Christmas time saw a drink in front of me. But when I testified on my behalf of myself, I said, did you ever see me take that cup and put it to my lips? He could not. So then he couldn't technically say that he caught me drinking. That's how you got off of it? Well, that's how I got off of it, yes. I mean, the thing about the military is they're very, very strict about things. And being in formation, marching, uh, wearing that cadet gray uniform uh, wool sometimes got awful warm now we sure appreciated it in the winter time and see i wasn't even used to that so-called winter time because uh living in mississippi or kentucky because i went to kentucky several times as an eight-year-old in transylvania university so it isn't like i lived in mississippi all my life i did not you know i want to go Back for a second, and I, in in our time, and I don't know if they call this is what they called it in your time. This whole situation where you apparently got drunk and had some drinks around Christmas time. I oh, think no, 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 nobody said I got drunk. <laughs> well, they call it the eggnog riot. Said, uh, but uh, <laughs> the thing of it is, uh, did you get drunk? <laughs> you know, I tried not to. I hated being drunk, inebriated. You've heard that word, haven't you, inebriated? Yeah, absolutely. Why do you say you hate that? Uh, we avo- I avoided getting inebriated because then you're not aware of what you're doing and what you're saying, and the worst thing you could do is say something when you're inebriated that somebody could quote you. I like to drink enough to feel good, but not drink enough to get intoxicated. Not to lose Does make control any sense? of what you're going to say. Yeah. And your actions. But I'm going to guess. Besides that, I didn't like what it did to the stomach. I mean, the food at West Point already did something to your stomach. They didn't really have much in the way of making you feel better. Maybe some Epsom salts once in a while if you uh, got an upset stomach. But uh, As you're saying this, it, it makes me think of something. Throughout your life, you struggled with your health a little bit, from my understanding. And so... When you were saying the food was really bad and it upset your stomach and you're saying you didn't drink to a point where you were inebriated, do you think maybe this had something to do with some of the, the health difficulties that you dealt with throughout your life, that you showed some restraint there? Well, after West Point, see, I graduated in 28, 1835, I married Sarah Knox Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. Her, uh, none of the Davis family was there, including her father, Zachary, and Margaret, his wife. My sister Lucinda did not come down to Mississippi because there's malaria. 
going on. But sometimes when you're young, how do I put it? You think you know it all. And we went down there anyway, and we caught malaria, both of us. We got married in June of 1835, and three months later, Sarah Knox Taylor's dead. I recovered from the malaria, but that would always come back to haunt me mentally and physically. My whole personality changed from a fun-loving guy to someone that was more, didn't hardly have a sense of humor. Because see, what would happen is I would have to admit that I caused my wife's death. Oh, because you're the one. In fact, my second wife said to me, Verena, after she met me, she's 18 years younger than I was. She wrote a letter to her mother named Margaret, who she also had a sister named Margaret, and also we would have a daughter named Margaret. Talk about Margaret's. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, she wrote a letter to her mother said when Jefferson states opinion that he automatically thinks that everyone agrees with him, and there's times I don't. I think having to be right would affect me my whole political career and military career. So looking back, I think this is, I think this is important. How old are you right now, before I ask this question? 73. Are you saying that one of your personality flaws is that you had to be right? Yes. I don't like to admit that. I mean, I would have never done that 20 years ago. We all feel like that when we're young. 20 years ago, I was starting to be president of the Confederacy. Were you too young? I would never admit it then, but as you age... You start to see things a lot differently and you start to see people differently because a lot of my peers are dead already. You understand where I'm coming from? Sure. I mean, so tell Gerald me what... Lee has been dead for 11 years now. He died in 1870. I see a lot of us are gone. Are you so surprised that you have lived in 65 and, you know, that's a long time ago. Are you so surprised that you've outlived all these people? Yes, I am. And we've had, Vereen and I have had very many losses that's very difficult for me to talk about. I mean, I mean, right now, we only have two daughters left out of our six children. How did they pass? Well, let me see. Samuel Emery was born in 52, and we got married in 45, and you're probably already thinking, how come you didn't have any children before that? Well, we just didn't. I was away a lot. Samuel Emery died in uh, 54 in Washington City. Now, Margaret, we called her uh, Polly or Maggie because of the, remember what I said, there's times that Verena's sister Margaret would be with us and uh, there's times that her mother Margaret would be with us and there's just too many Margarets. If you wanted to get everybody in the same room, you could just say Margaret and then everybody would be there. It would be nice. (laughs) That's right. Now, in 57, Jefferson Jr. was born He will die as a 21-year-old in Memphis, Tennessee, of a fever when we lived there almost 10 years after the war. In 1859, Verena was going to have a child, and uh, I was determined to name him Jefferson, and she was determined to name him William after her father. And I said, no, Jefferson, I mean Joseph. And, And she said, I don't like the name of Joseph because the way my older brother treated her when I went off to the Mexican War, he was kind of of the thinking that women were like children, should be seen and not heard. And uh, Verena very much expressed herself, especially when Joseph tried to have my sister Amanda, or was it Lucinda? Boy, so far back. When we were building our new briar field, 
he was determined that she would have one part of the house and we would have the other part. And uh, Verena put her foot down and said, absolutely not. So Joseph would then end up dying April 30th of 1864, falling off the veranda at the the house in on Clay Street in Richmond. Now, William was a sickly child to begin with, and he was born December 6th of 1861. Never forget that date. He died as an 11-year-old in 1872. That uh, really about crushed us. Oh, yeah. Now we have four sons, as of now, dead. And Verena was born June 27th of uh, 1864. She was called the uh, daughter of the Confederacy. Now, she wasn't even a year old when uh, we left Richmond, or I didn't leave. I left later, and Verena and the children left earlier with Sister Margaret and another accompaniment uh, on the run when uh, we took the government from Richmond uh, and kind of put it in a suitcase, if you might say. (laughs) She was just a baby, and then we also adopted a little black child named um, Jim Limber. Now, he was a mulatto. Verena saw his grandfather whipping him, and she took him. And when we were captured in Irwinville, Georgia, Hold on for a minute. Hold on for a minute. Hold on for a sec. They took him from us, and we never saw him again. Okay, hold on for a sec. You adopted a a black child, and when was that? Oh, sometime during the war, maybe 62, 63. Wow, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Well, he was a mulatto, but they took him from us. A mulatto child. probably wanted to spread kind of rumors that uh, we were abusing him or whatever else. Thing of it is, the enemy would do anything they could to make me look bad. Especially, I don't know if you ever heard of him, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. I heard he called Lincoln a baboon. <laughs> I'm sure Lincoln's been called a lot of things. Uh, when you say this, this child that you adopted was mulatto, which means half black, half white, in my understanding. They took that child away from you. Did you ever get your child back? No. You know the thing about this war between the states is a lot of us knew each other north and south and i'm trying to think of the general's name i can't remember but i we gave him the hymn and we never heard anything about him of course i was in prison for two years at fort monroe so i basically heard nothing for at least the first year about anything gosh that's of course, that, that's another question, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll come, we're going to come back to that, too. Hey, let's talk about... I want to know about Verena for a minute. I don't know about a lot about your your wife, Miss Verena. From what you're describing, she sounds pretty strong-willed. What is her personality like? She's beautiful, and she's very knowledgeable. See, her parents, William and Margaret, came to see me at West Point because they were friends with Joseph. I think it was the summer of 1826, because you're not even allowed to leave the first two years at the point. So I met him, and Joseph told me in uh, December of 1843, he says, I want you on your way to uh, Vicksburg to stop by, I think it's Amanda's place, to tell this young lady named Verena Howe that you're going to accompany her to my place the following day. And she was kind of sitting on a swing outside, and I saw her, and she turned around, and she was so beautiful. Now, she was born in May of 26. She was the second child of William and Margaret. Their firstborn, guess what they named him? (laughs) 
Hopefully not Joseph, Margaret. <laughs> after my older brother Joseph's name. Right. And uh, Margaret was educated in Philadelphia. And her grandfather was the governor of New Jersey for four terms hmm. from her mother's side. So she was educated. The problem with Mar- or Margaret, the problem with Verena at first was she was a Whig. Now, women couldn't vote, but she was a Whig. And, of course, I was a Democrat. I couldn't get past the knowledge she had. When I first met her, she loved the books because we went to my brother's home. His plantation was called Hurricane. And we were at Davis Bend, uh, south of Vicksburg, maybe 20 miles, right on the Mississippi River. So we got to know each other, and I know you've already done some addition, which means I was born June 3rd of 1808, and she was born in May of 1826. You're, always, you're already saying, there's 18 years difference between you two. It, it yes, does seem was. like that. <laughs> well, that's... And there's times I have to, looking back, I treated her like a young girl. How so? Well, think about it. Uh, By the time we get married, I'm about 36, and she's 18. Right. She's half my age. And she wasn't one of those type of women that just do everything I told her to do. She had a mind of her own, a political mind. And the books that she read... How many women do you know that likes to read congressional reports? (laughs) That's why I ask about her personality, because as you talk about her, she sounds like she is very intelligent and, like I said, strong-willed. I can't even believe she read – who reads congressional reports? Women would not ever voice a different opinion than their husband in public. And she did? That was not to be. Now – when we were in uh, Richmond, we didn't stay very long in Montgomery, Alabama. When we were in Richmond, there was times when she had her arm around me that she would take and pinch my arm because I'd always get into these arguments with these states' rights people. <laughs> and you might say, you, I thought you were for states' rights. Well, 11 fledgling states that aren't unified can't win a war, could they? No, no way. No, they couldn't. I would always say we have to unite as a strong union, and they would come back and say, well, that's what we seceded from, the strong meddling union, which is true. But still came down to the armies in the field had to be nationalized. We had to have a strong national government. You realize in the early United States that when they tried to do the uh, Articles of Confederation with each state having one delegate or even two delegates that we didn't have like we had with the uh, Constitution with executive branch, legislative branch, and judicial branch. By the way, the Confederacy never had a judicial branch. We never had a Supreme Court. Really? No, we did not. And you got to remember, who are the people that we elect? Do we elect Joe Dirt Kicker? Right, Joe Sodbuster to be our representatives, or do we elect somebody that has money and power? Right, absolutely. That has never changed. Well, it's not going to change. So there was no judicial branch. No, I'm, but Marina was very much by my side. In some ways, I felt like she became a Democrat 
like I became an Episcopalian because I was raised Baptist and she was raised Episcopalian. So in Richmond, we went to the Episcopalian church. In fact, I was sitting in there the day I got the message that Lee couldn't hold Petersburg anymore and had to leave. So I hate to, I hate to miss a good sermon. Yeah. When, when you said Verena would pinch you when you were talking to somebody about states' rights, she would pinch you because she had a different Well, think about it. Your so arm's that. around you, right? Okay. Yeah, you put your arm around the other person's arm. Right. But sometimes she would take her hand and put it around you in a way that she could squeeze your muscle part, you know, where you could say, look at my muscle. Right. And kind of squeeze, and then I'd look at her, and she'd give me that look, like, quit arguing with me, and you're not going to win. So was she pinching you because you were wrong, or... You were She's going pinching me because she thought I was going to make a fool out of myself. <laughs> okay, all right, gotcha. Because I don't like to be wrong. Verena was good for you. Verena was very good for me, but uh, there's times that uh, we had some struggles with our marriage, like any couple. Well, when you have two strong-willed people, I mean, you're going to have some arguments every once in a while, for sure. Is is, Ver- oh, is yeah. Miss Verena, is she still alive now? Is Verena alive? Yes. Very oh, okay. So. Yeah, I didn't know. Now, she was a little upset. Sarah Dorsey offered me this place, Beauvoir, and uh, we were in the process of buying it. But she stayed in Europe for a while because she thought that, I don't know, maybe that I was having an affair with Mrs. Dorsey. And Marina really didn't realize that she had a cancer that was killing her. She put it in her will that she left Beauvoir to me or us. Once Marina knew that, she was okay with that. Is Verena a jealous but, uh, person? I'd have to say a little bit yes, because as president, there would be a lot of bells that uh, we would be at balls and, and would want to dance with the president. Their gowns looked awful nice. I should say the, the ladies in the gowns looked awful nice. So right. I'd have to say that, you know, my view of women changed dramatically in my 70-some years. You know, when I first looked at them, you have that look like yum, 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 and then you get married, and that changes a little bit, and then you have a daughter like Margaret, and you think about some young man wanting to do to her or be with her the way you thought, and hear what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. my daughter. You know who else I think was thinking that exact same thing? Is when you originally attempted to marry Sarah Noss, Taylor. Her father, he put up some resistance, didn't he? Oh, yes, he did. Because and the reason he did is because he, he didn't want yum, his yum, daughter yum. to experience the same thing his wife, Margaret, which, which would be going from post to post to post in the United States Army. Some of those outer posts, there was nothing there. I mean, boredom sets in pretty easily. You can only train so much. And I don't know if you realize that at West Point, everybody gets an engineering degree. And you're placed, according to your grades and demerits, the highest level would be the engineers where Robert E. Lee was placed. He was number two in his class. He was an engineer? Engineer, yes. Robert E. Lee was an engineer. Better believe it. Next down is the artillery. Next down is the cavalry. Next down, the fourth down, in other words, the ones with the lowest scores go to the infantry. I was placed in the infantry. Is that right? See, the thing about when you're like a a top general like uh, Robert E. Lee over the Confederacy, 
Just because you might be in the engineers doesn't mean you can't transfer to a cavalry unit or an artillery unit. Lee was down in Texas with the uh, Texas Cavalry for a while. He's also superintendent at West Point at the time that I was Secretary of War. People that's never been in the military usually don't understand military terms and so forth. Even after the Battle of Manassas, people said, why didn't you take Washington City? And I said, well, the uh, soldiers were out of food, water, and ammunition. They don't understand how many miles you have to march. Right. From a distance, it looks very obvious. Just go over there and take that over. But up close, you're like, hey, we don't have any water. You already marched 20 miles earlier that morning before you went into battle. They just don't understand things like that. Of course, there's a the little issue of morale, I'm guessing, every once in a while as well. Oh, they never think of that either. Yeah. How would you like to have some bullet fly by you a number of times and see your best friend that you joined the service with dive right in front of you and look down and see a, a big mass that doesn't even look like the person anymore from an I artillery don't... shell that exploded or or the 58 caliber rifles? Those lead bullets uh, did a lot of damage. I don't understand how soldiers keep their spirits up. I just don't get it because that sounds awful. And when you were a soldier, you said for six or seven years, it sounds like you distinguished yourself that you were an effective and courageous soldier. Is that correct? Yeah, I could have been scouted by the Indians. Or sometimes I never called them that. I called them the natives. It was native to their soil. Yeah, but battles... If you add up all the time that they would do a battle in one year, it might only be 22 days out of 365. Oh, I see. Well, what do they do in between? Well, they a lot of times they would camp during the winter, and the war would kind of cease. I mean, Fredericksburg in December of 1862 was pretty much an exception to the rule, but for the most part, they just go encampment and don't do anything. And then when spring comes, about April... Have you ever noticed that wars start usually in April? <laughs> I mean, our own American Revolution started April 19, 1775 in, in Lexington, Massachusetts. War between the states, April 12th. I suppose Fort you're Sumter. right. Yeah. And a lot I mean, of times they end in April or May. The wars kind of don't really weather. realize that. Yeah, no, it makes, a, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Was being a soldier something that was difficult for you? Good times. I like being told what to do. I get that impression. But the thing with it is, before you learn how to give orders, you have to learn how to take orders. And that's not that easy to do. Because sometimes you have incompetence that are giving you an order and you know better. For instance, a line of infantry, take that ridge over there and you look up at the ridge and there are three or four batteries of artillery shooting at you. I mean, that's what the artillery is supposed to do, scatter the troops. Take that hill. Let's give a real good uh, example of Gettysburg. I believe they're starting to call it Pickett's Charge now. Lee had to start the battle. The artillery was supposed to decimate the people at the target area. It did not. They went over the target area. Jeb Stewart was supposed to be behind there, too, getting rid of any cavalry resistance. That didn't work out either. Our artillery about ran out of ammo to support the infantry, and they went across the field, and after that battle, Robert E. Lee wanted to resign. I said, no, 
I mean, I get talked about generals all the time. Why don't you accept or why don't you get rid of this person, do that? And, and I'd say, well, who am I going to replace him with? Especially after uh, 1864 that Grant took over and they stopped the exchange of the uh, soldiers. And that's when the prisoner war camps got bigger and bigger and bigger, including Andersonville, where Henry Wirtz was supposed to implicate me, and he would not, and they hanged him in November of 65. War is difficult. It doesn't always turn out the way you think it should, and there's somebody's brother out there. There's somebody's father out there. There's somebody's son out there. Well, that's the hardest Bye. part, isn't it? Mm-hmm. With you having children and you becoming president and you had to send people that you knew were going to die onto the battlefield, how, how did you do that? Yeah. You obviously have strong feelings about that. I did. Richard Taylor was Sarah's brother. He was a very good soldier. He survived, but Joseph's grandson, I could just go on and on and on. You know, you have friends and family that die that you went to West Point with. Like Albert Sidney Johnston went to Transylvania University and became very good friends with me. And then he turned around and went to West Point with me. And he got shot, I believe, in the boot and just bled to death. Oh, that'd be a terrible way to go. Thomas Jackson got shot by his own men. Intentionally? No. No, no, no. He went out to do some reconnaissance. They accidentally shot him, and he had an arm removed. And, you know, ironic that that took place on May 10th of 1863, and I got captured in two years later to the day, May 10th of 1865. No, not intentionally. Let's talk about you being captured for a minute. Tell me about that. I mean, that had the, the actual moment that you were captured... What did that look like? Because it's been four years of you being president, four years of the Civil War. Where were you? What did it look like? Was Miss Farina with you? Yes. They caught up with us. They being the we Union soldiers. We were near a little town called Irwinville, Georgia, sleeping in her tents. I had a cot. She had a cot. Very, very early in the morning, I heard all kinds of rifle fire. In fact, what was happening, now don't laugh, the Wisconsin Cavalry and the 4th Michigan Cavalry were fighting. In fact, two men got shot and died, okay? Okay. Now, I got up. I was sleeping on the cot with my uh, trousers and my waistcoat. You might call it a vest. And I was routed, and I, I got up to see what was on, and this young soldier come up to me. Now... I probably could have knocked him off his horse and took off. Now, would I do that? Of course I would not do that. That means I've left my wife. But what I did, instead of grabbing my frock coat, which I think I had, I'm pretty sure I had my extended sack on that day. It was a cadet gray. I grabbed her raglan. And, I, of course, you're going to say, what in the heck is a raglan? I am. Right? Yes. Well, a raglan was basically a house coat. Now, a house coat comes to the ankles, frock coat, extended sack coat comes to the knees, a sack coat comes to the waist. Do you understand the type of men's apparel that I'm dis discussing? I think so. Also, Verena got out, and I was going to walk to the river, and she put a shawl in front of me because this guy cocked his weapon like he was going to shoot me. 
Of course, she didn't want to see her husband shot. Who does? Right. So anyway, I got captured. Of course, the newspapers had to make sure that I was caught in a dress. (laughs) That's where that story came from. Yes. Okay, so you didn't put on a lady's wig and a dress and wrap yourself in a shawl to dress like a woman. That's how that came about. Right. I see. This is just a situation. We were within a group of people, which included John Reagan uh, of Texas. That was the postmaster general. I think his name was Captain Moody of Mississippi. He's an old neighbor of uh, our family and... Governor Lubbock of Texas, Colonel Harrison and a guy named Johnson and his staff and our four children, Maggie. Maggie was about 10. Jeff was about eight. Willie was about five and baby girl Verena. And also uh, Verena's sister, Margaret, and her brother was there with us. And we had a colored servant. We kind of had a small force of uh, cavalry. That, you know, is, is basically a wagon train of horses, mules, wagons, ambulances, and, and so forth. A number of my prize horses that I had, you know, I had my one saddle horse that I just absolutely loved. So they put us on a ship for several days. And uh, are you I in chains at this point? Fort Monroe. Yes, they put me in chains. Now, when I first got to Monroe, I refused to have those chains put on my ankles like just like a slave that some slaves would wear and I would be you know trying to push away and so forth I got very weak for a good while and uh the food was slop they kept candles burning all night and they had a guard on me all night that was supposed to they changed about hourly that they'd have heel plates on their boots and they'd walk across those floors clanging 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 I say that first six months, I thought I was going to die. You think they were doing that to keep you up and torture you? Yes. You got to realize that when I got captured May 10th, something tragically happened on April 14th. Now, first of all, when I found out that Lee surrendered, I thought, well, maybe he can get away and, and so forth and his troops. But then Grant paroled him. You know what that meant, don't you? They basically had to sign and say, hey, we're not fighting anymore. So Lee literally got on his horse and went back to uh, Richmond and stayed there. And his soldiers were dispersed. They could keep their horses. Grant gave very good terms. But then that Friday evening, uh, I've seen him as an actor. He wasn't very good. His older brother and father are far better actors. John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln. And, you know, Lincoln was the enemy, but I didn't hate him. Maybe you're not aware that I didn't have a very good relationship with Andrew Johnson. How well did you know him? He was a Democrat. See, I knew Johnson way back in 1845. I stood up right when I got into the House of Representatives. And when you're in your first year, you're not supposed to get up and give a speech. Well, I'm Jefferson Davis, and I did anyway. And I said, (laughs) it should be the military making a decision about the incoming war with Mexico since the United States annexed Texas, and Mexico wasn't going to sit down on that. I said, it should not be a blacksmith or tailor. Well, there's this tailor. You know what tailor does? He makes men's clothing. Right. Her dad didn't like me. We had exchange of words. Now he's president of the United States. (laughs) And, you know, the thing with it is he wanted to give me a pardon, but I wouldn't accept the pardon. I would not accept the pardon. Because I would have to admit that what we did was treasonous. And what we did was secede 
And I believe that secession was legal. This and was I John wanted a trial. Johnson wanted to give you a pardon. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. I refused it. But you didn't want to Because I would that. admit that I was a traitor, committed treason. And I didn't believe that secession was treasonous. And I why, still don't. Why but do they you, wouldn't give me a trial. Why do you think that is? You know why they didn't give me a trial, don't you? I'm trying to figure it out right now. Leaving the United States is called, well, leaving any territory or country is called secession. And there will be a number of people that might argue with you that when we withdrew from England, or I should say Great Britain by 1776, you can't use the word secession. And no one ever wants to think of George Washington, Ben Franklin, especially Thomas Jefferson. Anybody who signed the Declaration of Independence were traitors to King George III. So we felt secession was legal. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you can secede. There's nothing in the United States Constitution that says you can't. So we challenged it, and the Supreme Court didn't challenge it until 1869, long after Lincoln's death, with Texas versus the United States. And they said any, any state coming back in the Union have to write in their Constitution secession is legal. So what happened is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court I don't know if you're aware of Salmon Chase, Lincoln's ahead, Secretary yeah. of Treasury. I think he tried to, he wanted to run for president in 64, and he was a great attorney. And uh, Lincoln named him to the Supreme Court and became Chief Justice. He said, and you check this on your own, we can't try these men. They might win. And if we won the trial, that meant the war took place for nothing, wouldn't it? Wait a minute. If you win the trial, that means the... Okay, I'm thinking about this a different way. Let me see if I'm following this right. The North captures you. They put you in chains. They put you in prison for two years. You're telling right. them, I want a trial. They're saying no. I want a trial because they implicated me in Lincoln's assassination and put $100,000 on my head. Now, that had to be paid when I was released in 1867. And I'm not even sure if you're aware uh, who helped me get out of there? Who? Maybe your good friend, Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, who had many debates with Lincoln <laughs> in the paper. I don't know if you knew that. He put up $25,000. Cornelius Vanderbilt made a lot of money of uh, the railroads, put up another. Garrett Smith, who I don't know if you know this, was a former member of the Secret Six, who had supported John Brown's raid. He put up another 25000 Now, those three men have something in common. They were all abolitionists. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, I do. And then 10 men come up with 2500 and that's how the $100,000 got paid with no trial. And I went up to Canada to meet with Virginia because they were staying with her parents, Margaret and William, and uh, away we went. Okay, I don't want to – hold on. I want to finish this point, though. The reason that they didn't want to have a trial is because there was a possibility that they were going to lose, which would have meant that the South seceding from the Union would have been a legal event. And yeah. had, had that been the case, this opens the door to possibly it happening again, and, and maybe even immediately. Well, that's why in 1869, when the Supreme Court made their decision, it really basically said secession is illegal. Jeez. Even though there's people that say to me, uh, I wish certain parts of our state would secede. 
You know, I don't know if you know this. I was good friends, very good friends, with a man from Auburn, New York, that was a senator. His name was William Seward. You know, ever heard of William Seward? Mm-hmm. He ends up being coming Lincoln's Secretary of State. He was, after the nomination of 1816, Lincoln beat him out of it. Was Lincoln a better so, leader than you? Oh, I hate to hear that. I, it's I a question. <laughs> it's a question. Well, let's put it this way. With my strong-willed personality, looking back, I should have removed certain generals and should not have put certain generals in certain places because they didn't like me and I didn't like them. Lincoln would take men that challenged him for the Republican nomination in 1860 and put them in his cabinet. I, I couldn't have done that. Our original cabinet, we tried to get everyone from each of the seceding states, and that didn't work out because... Just because you're enthusiastic about the war effort doesn't mean you're qualified to run the Treasury Department or Secretary of War. I went through six Secretary of Wars, and one of them, I don't know if you know, ever heard of him, his name was George Randolph. He's the 11th child of uh, Martha Randolph, Martha Jefferson Randolph. My secretary, one of my secretary of wars only lasted about eight, nine months because he thought I was overseeing him like an overseer and he didn't like it. His grandfather was Thomas Jefferson, my namesake. Were you named Did after Did you Jefferson? also know that uh, Washington's grandnephew that sold Mount Vernon also served as a colonel in the Confederate Army? Oh, my goodness. I knew Mark Twain served in the Confederate Army. Who? <laughs> you wouldn't even know this person. I'm sorry. No, I, well, now. <laughs> Maybe you would. Yeah, I, I, I do, because 10 years after the war or so, somewhere or another, he started putting out these books on Thomas Sawyer and Huckleberry right. uh, Finn. Yeah, so I've I've heard of Samuel Clemens. Okay, all right. That might mean my wife introduced her, him to me, because my wife and daughter love to write, both of them. When you were talking about Lincoln's cabinet, and you were saying that there were people that he would put in his cabinet that I think you were saying that he he ran against. I'm trying to yeah, figure like out. Seward, like yeah, Chase. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out if you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Well, when you look back on your life, you have a totally different opinion than when you lived it. And that's you make sure. decisions when you're young that you wouldn't make decisions like that. You ever stop to think that that's how I got old? You learn from the mistakes that you make. But was that a mistake, him putting people in? Because these are people that opposed his opinion, and there might be some Yeah, good but they were strong people, and the thing of it is, I think I read somewhere, or somebody told me we had spies in the uh, executive mansion, said Lincoln appeared sometimes to be, looks-wise, like he wouldn't know anything, but because he's not very educated, they would tell me that he would make great decisions. And those strong men in his cabinet, I had strong men in my cabinet. I mean, they're the ones that pushed me to fire on Fort Sumter. I didn't oh, really you, want to. You didn't want you, to You, you fire surround on yourself with strong people that might have a different opinion than you because not everybody's going to agree with you, including my wife. Did she, did she want you to fire on Fort Sumter? Yeah, let's put it this way. After the war, she said the better side won. I hate to say that, but that's what she said to me. This is probably, I mean, if you look at it from a distance, you could see that. Can't you? You know, the whole opinion of the black man changed towards the end of the Confederacy. Way too late. I said to the cabinet, Lee needs men. Let's take some of these 
blacks and put them in the war effort. And my cabinet, they, a lot of them disagreed. You can ask all the cabinet members, why are we fighting this war? Including my vice president, who wrote the cornerstone speech. They said, absolutely not. What are we fighting this war for? So I said, let it be known that the Confederacy died of a theory. The question that I wanted to share with you is Alexander Stevens wrote the cornerstone speech that said the writers of the Declaration of Independence had low wrong. The black man is not equal to the white man. Is your Now, I had my father, before he died, gave me a slave, John Pemberton. He lived to me until he, he died, and he was my overseer. He was my everything. He helped me build the first Briarfield, by the way, that I never owned. I realized I didn't own Briarfield about a thousand acres. It was when Joseph died in 1870, I found out that I did not have the deed to it. And I had to fight his descendants. By 1874, it was mine. But uh, by then, I'd sold it to uh, one of my former slaves and uh, he couldn't maintain it because of the flooding in the area. Just kept flooding, flooding, flooding. So I'm saying to you that a lot of times opinions changed. Well, that's what I want to ask you, okay? So I want to ask you about these opinions changing because I, as a writer as well, I know that when you sit down and write a book, it takes a lot of mental horsepower. Research. Oh, that's what I'm doing right now, trying to recall a lot of these events. Well, but not only research. I agree with you on research, but not only research. A book for when you write a book, and I'm sure you're realizing this now, it forces you to really go into your thoughts and unwind some of those experiences and and learn from them in a way that you can't learn any other way. You've obviously had some big changes in the way that you feel about the war, it sounds like, and maybe even the black man. When you were younger, I don't know if this has changed at all. I think there's no question that when you were younger, you would think that the black man is not equal to the white man. But is the black man more equal now to you, or or is he equal? How have those feelings changed over the years? Well, here's a thought. If you never have these people work on complicated, in other words, in the South, dependent on states, you were not supposed to educate them. Joseph and I did anyway. Did you hear what I just said? We educated them. Yeah, you and your brother educated them. We also let them work hard and gave them some of their money back that they earned. We as slave owners were totally different than the Simon Legree types. Now, you know who Simon Legree was? No. Okay, there was a book come out written by a lady named Harriet Beecher Stowe. Her father was a minister. Her brothers were ministers. She wanted to be a preacher and wrote this book based on certain accounts about a man named Uncle Tom who was eventually sold to Simon Negree who beat him to death because Eliza ran off and and, uh, he wouldn't give the whereabouts. So when that book came out, a number of people started looking at the Southern people as everyone owned a slave. And they started to look at the soldiers, what caused the war versus why men fight. Why do these southern men fight? They keep their rich neighbors happy owning slaves? Do you think that was a reason? I, I don't think no. that was the only reason. <laughs> no, 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 no. Would you do that? Now think about it. Would you put that wool uniform on, march all over the place, barely getting paid, barely being to have a chance to eat, barely having a, a soft bed to sleep in, so your rich neighbor could own a slave? Oh, I see what you're saying. No, absolutely not. You're right. But then you have people coming along and saying that, 
they confuse what caused the war and and why men fight. My opinion still is I don't think they have the intellectual capacity to do what the white man can do, but reason being is because we never really ever gave them a chance because we tried not to educate them, and I told you we did educate ours. I see. And when the Union troops came down and ran these slaves off and set my brother's plantation on fire, hurricane, and ran them off a mine, a lot of them came back. Now, I guess my thought is they left their home, and to a number of them would say, this was never my home. You understand where I'm coming from? Well, yeah, I think what you're saying is they came back. My perception of how they responded to what I gave them, you know, the thing with it is, there's even people that say, uh, which I always call Lincoln and the Yankees a, a hyenas once they issued the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> Why's that? Well, the thing of it is, by removing a lot of the slaves off the plantations and freeing these people, hey, a lot of people don't even understand the proclam- uh, Emancipation Proclamation that Lincoln put, put out. He said, only in the territories are still rebelling against the Confederacy. Could these soldiers free these? In other words, they weren't free in Delaware. They weren't free in Kentucky and New Missouri. You hear what I'm saying? He's saying they're free in the South? Okay, Lincoln, in our opinion, said that the slaves that were owned by the people rebelling against the Union were free because he could only do that as commander-in-chief. So once the word started spreading that Lincoln issued this Emancipation Proclamation in the area, if, the, if they knew the soldiers were nearby, they would run off to the soldiers. And then Sherman had problems with all those people following the army. See what wow. I'm saying? Yeah. So, and besides that, the war itself, Lincoln said right away, this war is to save the Union. It wasn't free any slaves. Of course, Lincoln then changed the way the war was by issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. By then... These black soldiers could join the army. Did you know they weren't allowed in the army before that? Before the, the Emancipation Proclamation or before the Civil War? Right. They weren't allowed in the Union Army. But then once they needed soldiers, then they said, yeah, come on in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeez. That's kind of the way America works. I love our country. But that's kind of the way it works. It's, things change when they have to change. Sometimes whether they're right or wrong. Yes. And right now I have servants, and they do well. And, and part of them, that's the only life they ever knew. And they knew, the thing with it is, they knew they would have a nice soft bed to sleep in, and now I'm paying them instead of them being slaves. Do you think there's a difference? Yeah, because they can quit and leave and go someplace. But if they quit and leave someplace, no question about that. If they quit and leave someplace, aren't they still a slave to the dollar? Yes, they are. I mean, a lot of the immigrants in the United States that worked up in the North were more worse off than a lot of the slaves that were in the South. Hmm. It really depends on what job you have as a slave. Maybe you're not aware of that. No, tell me. When I went to the slave auction, if I saw a slave for sale, say, let's just say 1855. His name's John. He's about 21 years old, and his pappy taught him to be a carpenter. Opening bid on him might start at $1,200. You might say, well, that's not much money. You could buy a house for $1,200, young man. That sounds like yeah, a lot I in your time. Drink of water, and and now somebody else wants him twelve fifty thirteen. He might go for twenty one hundred dollars. Now this field hand I'm checking out got marks all over his back, and they say he's a little bit lazy, and 
and the plantation sold him because he was worthless, or it could have been an estate sale. He might be worth only four or five hundred dollars. In other wow. words, the more skill you had, the more you were worth. What would a house? But according like to a- Uncle Tom's Cabin, every single one of us took those slaves and beat them, which yeah. isn't true. Yeah, you had miserable people like that. The 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 blacks called them white trash. How do I say it? Everyone's treated differently and raised differently. And if there's a Bible in the home and both parents are reading that Bible and attending church compared to a family where the father's mostly at the tavern all the time. Hear what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, I do. And in See, fact, you're raised with value. There's also how much money you had when you were growing up versus how much money you had as you aged. I can't say my father was really wealthy. Now, my older brother was and helped me get the plantation started by giving me those thousand acres to build Briarfield. I had a lot of stuff given to me. Let me Does ask that make you any something. sense? Yes, it does, yeah. And I want to ask you a couple questions about what you've just said. I have like some very specific questions I want to ask. Jefferson Davis had a real problem with authority, but you can't help but admit that he had a point. Even though slavery is wrong, his right to secede was probably not a constitutional violation. After being captured, the government would not give him a trial because it might prove that secession was legal. And if it was, then what? After all, how could a country born from secession from England ban the South from the same right, especially since no document prevented it? This next episode is fantastic, but you'll be introduced to a horrifying term I'd never heard of in relation to this time period, overage. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.